more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you, as always, for being part of the show, and uh, to any extent that you feel comfortable recommending this to others, I'd appreciate that, because I truly cherish every single download I cherish every single person that listens, and uh, I particularly cherish those of you who write in and uh, let me know. Uh, Let me know how you feel. Uh, I accept criticism. I even accept stern criticism. Now, I don't care for abuse, but constructive criticism, always welcome. Um, I'm hoping that you will find this interesting What happened is that uh, during this week, I I had a meeting with uh, an associate uh, with whom I have uh, I've done some business to both of our prophets, and um, he's from the United Kingdom, and uh, he came over to the United States, and we had some meetings, and when we had dealt with business and uh, we were just having uh, uh, an enjoyable lunch, he said to me, he said uh, so. I don't eat pork. And I said, oh, really? That's interesting. You're not Jewish. And he said, no, but um, I just assume that if there is such a strong biblical prohibition against it for Jews, uh, there must be a good reason. So I explained to him the, uh, the correct reason, and he was very intrigued by that. And I found his curiosity stimulating, and so it resulted in uh, a lengthy conversation. And when I uh, we, we, we drew to a conclusion, and he said, you know, I uh, always listen to the podcast, and you really should put it up there because I'm not the only person who's curious about this strong Jewish taboo um, on eating pork, so much so that although uh, perhaps only about 20% of people, of Americans, who self-identify as Jewish um, would regard themselves as observing the laws of the Torah, uh, and it's it's probably not much more than that, you know, 25% if you sort of interpret it broadly, but that's about it. Um, Or if I put the question this way, as I usually do, Do you live your life or believe that God spoke to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai? 75%, at least 75% of American Jews would answer no, or they would answer, well, it depends. Well, that's the same as no. Uh, The starting an answer with the word well is just a way of postponing what you're really saying, which is no. Um, I've pointed out in the past that uh, when young men are dating my daughters, uh, one of the several questions I put to them, and and yes, uh, it's not fun dating my daughters. Let me me just be honest about that. It just isn't fun. It may be fun dating them, uh, but it's not fun. The whole process is not good because, number one, I uh, and my daughters, we don't accept the theme of dating, we believe in courting. What's the difference? Dating is open-ended, and it's a leisure activity. 
recording is purposeful, deliberate, and uh, time-sensitive. In other words, I know girls who very foolishly and tragically, in most cases, date somebody for seven years. Uh, courting never goes on for, for more than, uh, frankly, it goes on not, not much more than a month or maybe two. That's kind of it. Because in that time, you should very definitely know whether this is absolutely out of the question as a match or whether perhaps uh, this might be moving towards something specific. And if it is, then I recommend that it does move ahead. By the way, I don't think a broken engagement is the worst thing in the world. I don't even think it's particularly terrible. Um, it's, it's just not. The reason I say that is because it's really important in a courting relationship that things move forward and move ahead. Very often, there are certain things that come out to discredit and uh, invalidate the, the relationship, only come out when it does move ahead to another level. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, two of my daughters, uh, I think two, maybe three have had, uh, three, yeah, three have had broken engagement, no big deal. Uh, doesn't doesn't worry us in the bit, in the slightest because what sh what came out that that told us that these were not good situations uh, only came out because of the added level of commitment that an engagement implies and more importantly the added level of stress that an engagement brings about. If anyone says, "Oh, when you're engaged, that time when you're engaged, the happiest time of your life," uh, the person is either a liar or a fool. It's, that's simply not true. And um, and if and if that is if you're having a fabulous engagement time, uh, then either you're marrying your sister, uh, and and as a result of that you both have the same kind of background and the same upbringing and the same approach and you have nothing to argue about, um, or you're simply uh, not telling the truth because during an engagement time it's two completely separate human beings with two backgrounds and two different styles and two different personalities are beginning to get ready to weld themselves into a single entity called a marriage. And uh, it, it's crazy to think that that can be an easygoing time. Of course, being engaged is stressful. And, uh, and sometimes there are many things that don't uh, become apparent during the initial dating or courting period. But uh, when you actually get engaged, it's at that point that the added stress brings out certain personality traits or certain beliefs or certain flaws that uh, needed to become apparent. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's why we're, we're not at all uncomfortable with the idea of getting engaged, even if uh, it, it results in a broken engagement. We much prefer that to a lengthy dating period because I'm going to tell you something, and, uh, and some of you may be uncomfortable with this, but uh, my job is not to massage you with warm butter. Uh, it's to tell you the truth. And uh, uh, the, the, the truth. And the, the, the truth is that um, the truth is that in uh, six or seven or eight or nine months of dating, you are not going to find out a whole lot more than you will in the first two months. Uh, so I, among the questions that I would ask when my daughter is, uh, is courting somebody, I'd always, uh, I'd always say, and I will always say to, to the young man, hello, look, uh, tell me, what do you do for your fellow human beings? And he, he usually pauses, and that's fine. And I say, well, 
you know, what I'm really asking is, what do you do for a living? Um, I don't want to say, what do you do for a living? Because that sort of sounds really selfish. It implies that all the only reason you work is is to get money. And that I don't think is the real reason you work. I know it's not the real reason I work. The real reason I work is to add into other people's lives. And the money flows as a result of that. So that's why I put it this way. What do you do? But if you, you know, if you'd prefer it as what do you do for a living? Anyway, so basically, yes, I'm asking you, what do you do? And I'll tell you this. I have a standard rule that if the young man starts his answer to me with the word, well, I know he's unemployed. <laughs> I mean, end of story. He's unemployed. That's all there is to it. Because uh, anybody, particularly a guy, may be different for some women, but particularly for a guy, uh, look, we are linked to our work in a way that um, women are not necessarily so, and I can explain that. If any of you have real trouble with that statement, shoot me an email, and I'll uh, and I'll tell you later how to contact me, and I'll also add to that point. But uh, but I, I think most people accept that a man's identity is far more tied to his work than is true for a woman, and so. Uh, you know, if somebody says to you or to me, so so what do you do? Man, you, you're going to have to put a cork in my mouth to turn me off. I launch off into an enthusiastic diatribe about what I do and what I love doing and how I do it. I mean, you're going to start rolling your eyes and want to just get away from me. But, you know, you can't stop me talking if you ask me what do I do. That's the kind of passion and enthusiasm that we all need to generate for the work we do. And notice how I put that. I don't say we must all find work that we're passionate about because that's, again, being self-centered. What we've got to do is do the work that we ought to do and then learn how to be supremely passionate and excited about it. And so uh, that word, uh, well, starting off as the answer, to me, I translate that always as unemployed. <laughs> it's simple as that. And so similarly, when I ask the question, as I do all the time to, to friends I encounter, to people I meet, uh, whether they're Jewish or Christian or neither, uh, I always say, you know, so do you, how do you feel about the proposition that God gave his message to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai? And uh, people, you know, answer different ways. People say, well, you know, I think that's ridiculous, it's primitive, it's tribalistic, it's... it's um, uh, you know, senseless, and uh, other people say, "Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that that's absolutely correct." Uh, but there are also other people who say, "Well," and there are many, many co-religionists of mine I find who answer that way um, because they had grandparents or great grandparents or relatives um, who did take the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob very seriously. They're just a teensy bit uncomfortable about saying, no, no, I don't, I don't accept that at all. It's, uh, uh, it's superstitious and no more than that. Uh, and so instead, they say, well, it sort of depends on what you mean. Like, you know, do you want, maybe Moses was inspired or, you know, all of these. Okay, fine. Uh, bottom line is that it's, it's really a pretty straightforward question. And uh, the answer is yes or no. Um, and and that's fine if it's no, it's no. I just <laughs> I just like to know where you stand. That's all, and it's exactly the same way as if I say, uh, so how do you believe human beings arrived on this planet? There really are only two answers to that, right? There really are. One is that the good Lord created us in His image and placed us here. 
That's one answer. Now, you may not like that answer. That may be an answer that carries an enormous amount of uh, psychological and religious baggage which, which places you in awkward circumstances. Uh, so, fine, take the other approach. Here's the other approach for the answer to how human beings arrived on this planet. This, this answer is, by a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into plumbers and ballerinas. That's it. In other words, this arrival of human beings on this single lonely planet, part of a single lonely solar system, in a single lonely galaxy, in a single lonely corner of the vastness of the universe, came about either because God made it happen, or it came about through a completely materialistic random process where amino acid molecules bumped into one another and with the assistance of lightning turned into organic uh, compounds, etc., etc., and through the course of um, e enormous stretches of time. Okay, fine. Those are the only two choices you got. You know, the only other choice is little green men in spaceships came and put us here, but I think that only postpones the question because we have to ask where they came from. So let's just leave it at the truth, which is there are only two answers to the question. Similarly, uh, did God give his message to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai? It's kind of yes or no, you know. There's, there's really not much else. I mean, you can say, I don't know. That's always an honorable response. But um, the, uh, the curious thing about the, uh, um, the population of Jewish Americans is the tremendous ambivalence on that particular question. And uh, more on that as soon as we come back. Meanwhile, if you want to send me an email, you just go to rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay? You just go to my website, and uh, there you'll find a Contact Us tab, and you'll be able to shoot me an email, which I will get. And many of you have discovered I actually answer a whole lot of them as well. If they're not too long and too complicated, uh, I do answer them. And... Uh, also, that is a place where you can subscribe to my free weekly email thought tools. It's also a place where you can visit my store and uh, take a look at the income abundance set. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later on. But uh, first of all, quick break and then back to pork and the Jews. Don't go away. Welcome back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. My website rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, on we go with the show uh, talking about Jews and pork but before that just clarifying that uh, yes the majority of Jews do not take uh, the faith of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob seriously uh, what that means is that uh, majority the majority do not observe the Sabbath the fourth commandment uh, the majority do not observe the dietary laws. And don't forget that the very first law that God ever gave to humanity <laughs> was a dietary law. He said, exclude from your diet, said the Lord to Adam and Eve, exclude from your diet the two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Those you can't eat. You can eat all the others. Actually, he said that to Adam, not Eve hadn't arrived yet. But... Um, but uh, the point being, of course, that uh, dietary laws kind of kind of important, and so um, 
Later on, there are specific dietary laws given to Jews, um, including what types of animals may be eaten. And, uh, and again, the, the point is that we view, in ancient Jewish wisdom, we view uh, planetary existence as falling into four categories. Things are either mineral, vegetable, animal, or human. So uh, if you're looking at your bookcase, that's made out of wood, that's, um, that's vegetable. If it's made out of plastic, well, that's oil-based, and it comes from the earth, that would be mineral. Um, if you're looking at your puppy dog, that's animal. Uh, and there we go, throughout everything on the planet is either mineral, animal, uh, mineral vegetable, animal, or, uh, or, uh, or human. And... As far as uh, the Jewish dietary laws that we call kosher, uh, and by the way, you, if you look in the market, you'll see that many, many products have been certified as kosher. One of the ways you can tell is that you might find in the labeling a teeny-weeny little uh, U inside an O. That is a kosher symbol. It's, a, it's, an, it's an, a national kosher certifying agency. Uh, or you might see a K inside a little O. And there are several other symbols as well. They're usually small, very inconspicuous, and contrary to popular belief, um, do not add to the cost of the, uh, the product. And so uh, these, the, these things are, uh, the, these things conform to kosher. What do we know about kosher? Well, we know that. Um, all vegetables are okay. All vegetables can be eaten, and uh, one of the reasons is that vegetables eat downwards, and we're more comfortable with things that eat downwards in that four-level matrix I just described to you, mineral, vegetable, animal, and human. Um, vegetables only eat minerals, right? A tomato grows because it draws nutrients, mineral nutrients, from the soil. And it takes air and oxygen and so on, carbon dioxide, etc. Uh, and so vegetables eat downwards. Now there are a few exceptions, and they're non-edible -ed vegetables. The exceptions uh, don't really impact this rule at all. But it's interesting that uh, not just Jewish people, but all people are just a little uncomfortable with um, uh, vegetables that eat that that eat not down. Okay, for instance, what am I talking about? A Venus flytrap. A Venus flytrap uh, does exactly what it sounds like. It clamps down over a fly that inadvertently wanders too close to the dangerous trigger points in the flower. And <laughs> it's the most amazing thing to watch. It's extraordinary. Now, you'd think everyone would want Venus flytraps in their living rooms, right? Because it would keep away flies. But no, nobody does. People are just a little uncomfortable with vegetables that eat animals because we're in, in the sort of natural order of things. We're more comfortable with animals that eat vegetables. And we're more comfortable with vegetables that eat minerals. Now, minerals that eat upwards are, of course, extremely rare. But you do find it quite often in horror movies. Think of something called quicksand. Now, you'll see quicksand far more frequently in the movies than you will in real life. But the notion of sand sucking a human being to his doom is, is so shocking and, and so terrifying 
that it just it, it bothers us intensely and uh, and rightly it should because it's a mineral <laughs> eating upwards instead of downwards now minerals don't eat at all so it's even doubly disturbing vegetables eat downwards and eat eat uh, mineral uh, animals now is the next level on the four level matrix and now animals is a little bit interesting about because some animals eat downwards eat vegetables and um, and some animals eat horizontally and they eat other animals well uh, kosher animals are all the animals that uh, animals that eat downwards in other words no animal that eats other animals is kosher so a wolf or a lion uh, are not kosher animals they can't be eaten but deer venison uh, beef sheep and uh, and so on and so forth all of these creatures that eat downwards are in fact uh, are kosher so um, how about an animal that eats upward that's very unusual uh, if 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 a lion in Africa or a tiger in India eats a villager, uh, the the nearby villagers don't rest until they've captured and killed the creature, and there's no practical reason for that because it's been proven to be uh, false that animals that have once tasted humans, it's not as if they develop a taste for for us. They d they don't. It's it's just not a it's not diet of preference. So it's not as if you have to go and hunt down the tiger that ate a villager because he'll do it again. He won't. Um, it's just that it's tremendously disturbing in the same way that deep down we realize that there's something wrong about letting a human murderer walk around the streets as if there's no problem, as if, oh, we just forgave him. You know, it's very good to forgive people. We forgave him. Deep down, even people who are wrongly oppose the death penalty know that there's something not good about letting something, anything, a, a, a human beast or an animal beast that killed a human being walk around free. Um, all of that is uh, by way of explaining that um, the, uh, the, the types of creatures that are permitted, that are kosher, um, are creatures that, uh, uh, well, let me put it this way perhaps, uh, fish, fish that have scales are permitted to be eaten. Uh, that excludes eels, and it excludes uh, shark, and it excludes shellfish, and it excludes crustaceans like lobsters and shrimp. And, um, and yes, um, as a matter of fact, I truly have absolutely no idea what lobster tastes like. I have no idea what crab tastes like. I'm going to assume pretty darn good. That's what I'm going to assume. Because um, I just don't think that all those people who pay top dollar for lobster or crab are doing it to torment themselves. So I must assume it tastes pretty good. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, here's the reason you know why the Old Testament um, prohibits the eating of crustaceans and shellfish and bottom feeders like catfish is because they're unhealthy. Ladies and gentlemen, don't believe that for a moment. If that were true, the health statistics for people who eat crustaceans, who, who enjoy, who gorge themselves on lobster and crab and shellfish and so on, um, would be notably different from that of Orthodox Jews who don't. And that's sim simply not true. Uh, not for a single moment should you believe that the reason that uh, 
the Torah prohibits Jews from eating shellfish is for health reasons. Simply not the case. Now, how about pork? Right. Well, don't you know, pigs are unclean, they, they, uh, they have disgusting habits, and so on and so forth, and there's also um, a disease that is carried by pigs called trichinosis. Okay, fine. It's simply not true. I'm not saying that those things don't exist. They, they do, but that's the, the, the point, however, I'm making, is that um, if, in fact, this was truly a reality, then you would expect the health statistics for people who eat pork to be noticeably different from those people that don't, and that simply is not the case. Uh, the truth is that uh, there's no reason for anybody to, uh, to, be, um, to, to, to endure any health, ill health consequences from eating um, shellfish or eating lobster or crab, uh, you know, provided all basic health requirements are met. Same for pork. The notion that somehow you're at risk to your health for eating pork is simply not true. Uh, look, people sometimes get salmonella from eggs if, you know, if, if certain uh, uh, rules are not followed. Uh, sometimes there are vegetables that, uh, that are sometimes found to carry uh, various uh, stomach-upsetting diseases. And uh, Yeah, sure, these things happen. But the idea that somehow they are more likely with shellfish or with pork, simply not the case as far as I know. So if, if that is true, then why on earth are they prohibited, right? Why are they prohibited? Well, um, the answer is, well, before I, before I give you the answer to, to that, I think I probably have to start off by explaining that we human beings have three main appetites. There are three things we really enjoy. There are three things we yearn for. There are three things we desire and want. Food, sex, and money. Those are the three main appetites we human beings have. And uh, one of the, uh, the, 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 the very true things is that life is too complex to be able to solve by means of a simple slogan. In other words, you know, the old cartoon about somebody who climbs the mountain uh, to find the wise guru at the peak, and he says to him, tell me the meaning of life, and the guy answers and says it's radishes, uh, you know, or, other, or some other equally meaningless monosyllabic uh, reply. I mean, that's a joke. Well, it's, it's pointing out that you, you can't find uh, deep secrets to the complexities of living in a simple slogan. You cannot. However, uh, I could tell you something about the secret of life, the secret of success in life. And again, in reality, the truth, let me just tell you the truth is that uh, there's no one secret. But... If it were to be reduced to one secret, if I was forced to tell you the one thing you got to do, the one thing you got to know in order to succeed at life, this is what I'll tell you. Coming right back, I'm going to tell you exactly that.
Welcome back, and uh, let's dive right back into the material. The secret for success in life, sure, I can tell you the secret for success in life. If you do this, you're going to have a successful life. Here it is. Do what you must do when you must do it. Don't do what you want to do. Do what you must do. Don't put it off and procrastinate and never get to it. Do it when you must do it. Think about that, and, uh, and you would probably agree with me that that's a pretty good recipe for success in life. Right? Do what you must do when you must do it. Right? Get an education when you should do it. <clears throat> Work and do your jobs and take care of business when you should do it. Um, get married when you should. There's a good time to get married. The, the other times, not so good. Okay? Uh, to get married for the first time when you're 43, it's not ideal. Right? I, it's, uh, there are many people who do it, and you have a, a wonderful, happy marriage. Everything's great. I, I'm not telling you don't do it. But I'm telling you that if you have a choice between getting married in your 20s or getting married in your 40s, there's no question as to which you should do. Do what you must do when you must do it. Now, that's pretty simple, right? So how come we don't all of us, every one of us, why doesn't everybody just have a successful life? I mean, that's really simple, isn't it? Do what you must do when you must do it. Hey, anyone can remember that. Off you go. Teach it as a, uh, as a parting gift to everyone who finishes high school. Here it is. More important than social studies, more important than gender studies, more important than everything else they manage to fill your head with in high school. Here's the one thing you got to know. Do what you must do when you must do it. Done. Finished. Success. On your way. Well, you know as well as I do that it doesn't work that way. Because knowing what to do isn't the same as being able to do it. Why is that? And the answer is because of the appetites that are built into our existence. <clears throat> the fact is that uh, we all want food. Yes, we do. We all want food. And uh, sometimes the pursuit of food um, can deter us and deflect us from other things that we should be doing. We all want sex, and the pursuit of sexual satisfaction can sometimes deflect us from what we should be doing. And we all want money, and sometimes the pursuit of money can deflect us from the correct process of getting it. Because of these appetites, we are deflected, for the most part, from doing the things that we know we must do. In other words, one of the great secrets in ancient Jewish wisdom that um, many people have understood, many people have grasped, many people have figured out for themselves, is that it is much easier to run your life, to run you, Incorporated, when you realize that there's really 
a bifurcation in your being when you realize that there really are two parts of each and every one of us struggling for supremacy. One of the uh, metaphors that is commonly used to describe this is a horse and a rider. There's a part of us that is the person riding the horse, and there's a part of us that is the horse. There's a part of us that is the intellectual, um, spiritual, uh, goal-oriented aspect, and then there's a part of us that is the body. And um, to paraphrase um, the uh, embarrassed, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that he's Jewish, but he is Jewish. Uh, he's Jewish by birth, but um, he's certainly somebody who would say no to the question of, do you believe God gave his message to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai? And that's Woody Allen. You might remember Woody Allen got involved in an incredibly messy and unwholesome sexual relationship. And um, what, uh, what he said famously when, when, when people confronted him and said, how could, this is insane, how could you have done this? And his answer was, what can I do? The heart wants what the heart wants. Okay. That's a profoundly insightful uh, response. He, in many ways, without realizing it, he was telling us something profound and true. Accepting uh, that we'd be better off saying the body wants what the body wants. Um, sometimes it's sometimes it's the heart that misleads us. Emotions pull us, admittedly. Sometimes it's the body that pulls us. And listening to the heart or the body is like listening to the horse instead of the rider. Um, in other words, imagine, if you would, a Martian from outer space arriving on this planet, and one of the first things he sees is uh, a lady riding a horse across a field. And he thinks to himself, oh, look at that poor little creature sitting on the back of that big creature. That little creature's being taken against its will, who knows where, uh, because it's totally in the control of that big creature underneath it, and it's going to go where it wants to go. It's a perfectly logical mistake, is it not? Perfectly understandable for a, a Martian to think that by virtue of size, the horse determines where it's going, and the person stuck on its back has little option but to willy-nilly go along for the ride. And that's a, that's a reasonable mistake for a Martian to make. The truth, as we all know, of course, is exactly the opposite. And it has nothing to do with physical size. It has to do with spiritual willpower. And that is that the small person on the back of the horse directs the horse. The horse goes where the person wants it to go, not the other way around. And so each and every one of us, you and me, are made up of a horse and a rider. And sometimes we let the horse decide where it's going. And other times we have the rider make the decision. And invariably, our lives go better when the decision is made by the rider, not by the horse. In other words, do what you have to do when you have to do it. In spite of the fact that your body and your emotions want to take you off in different directions.
what are the different directions? Well, partially, uh, our appetites. Now, obviously, uh, another area is laziness. We are all created with, uh, uh, with the, the default condition of lazy. If a child is not brought out of that, then the child grows into an adult who wants to, do, who wants to exert as little effort as possible for as much return. My personal view on this, and I haven't uh, researched it, I haven't examined it carefully enough to be able to state it to you as a fact, but my personal uh, belief on this is that the growing tendency towards gambling in uh, the United States of America, and by the way, I think it's a terrible thing that government goes ahead and... and uh, adds to this with state lotteries and uh, national, oh, there are all kinds of lotteries, including many that are done by the government. And it's a, I think it's a terrible thing for the government to, uh, to, to collaborate in encouraging people to, to gamble. Why? Well, what is the deep down yearning that motivates gambling? Why would I take a perfectly good $5 bill and put it at risk because it could result in total loss of it, but it might result in me getting back $100. Please don't think for a moment that that is similar to investing. It's totally not similar to investing at all because investing is not a, um, uh, a, a one-way street. In other words, when I invest, it's not a win-lose situation. It isn't like that, because when I invest, I might have a return on my investment, but that means that the company I invested in also did well. It's good for everybody, and if there isn't a return on my investment, it's not as if the company in whom I invested, well, they're doing really well. It's just they're not paying me a dividend. No, it's not like that either, and so uh, when you gamble, if I lose, you win. If I win you lose. But um, investments are not like that at all. Even the commodity exchange isn't like that. Because when I buy a future on, on the commodity exchange, I'm actually doing good. I'm making certain that there is stability in the grain market so that um, cereal manufacturers can price their cereals for the coming year. I'm doing a tremendous good for society when I invest in futures. Very good thing. But gambling is win-lose. It's never win-win. Um, my loss, your win. My win, your loss. And people are drawn to it, I believe, because of a growing desire in the country to get something for nothing. There was a time that... Uh, Times were much, much rougher than they are now. I'm thinking of the Great Depression, which, um, uh, in my view, President Roosevelt dramatically extended and worsened by the New Deal, by government's involvement that didn't make the Depression go away quicker. It made the Depression last longer. That is a different discussion. If you're not familiar with that, you can, you can certainly explore it. And, uh, and discover that that's absolutely true. But in the Depression, 
which was much worse than any circumstances over the last 20 years, uh, people didn't beg. There was very little begging going on. Why? Because part of being a, a human being is not wanting something for nothing. And it was, it was tragic. People, people try to sell shoelaces on street corners or to sell apples or to do anything to retain the human dignity of not having something for nothing. And there's been a uh, severe moral deterioration, which, by the way, results in an economic and military deterioration in a country when, when a moral deterioration takes place. Please don't think that it happens in a vacuum. It causes widespread deterioration throughout the culture. And right now there are so many so-called, um, I was going to say vagrants, but that would be terribly politically incorrect, homeless people and uh, panhandlers on the streets. And, and I must tell you, I'm very torn about this. And, and, uh, and, and here's the, 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 the decision I've made. When I'm with my children, when my children are around, I, I actually give. I actually reach into my pocket and I give them a dollar. Um, I hate doing it because it's a bad, bad thing. Um, on, on one occasion, one of my children actually asked me, you know, there's a homeless person. Are you going to give the person? I said, look, I hate walking by a human being who's asking me and turning my back on that person. So my, uh, my child said, well, why didn't you offer them a job? I said, fabulous idea. And I've had a pretty good idea what's going to happen, and I bet you do as well. Uh, I said to the, uh, the person who had his hand out and said, come on, spare, spare a couple of dollars. And um, uh, I said to him, well, what did I say to him? Why don't I tell you that? Coming right back. We're back again, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and uh, diving right back into the topic. Walking past a homeless person, a vagrant, a beggar, panhandling on the street, my child says, why don't you offer him a job? I said, good idea. And uh, the person said, oh, spare $2, spare $2. So uh, I said, I'll tell you what, uh, how would you like $10? And his eyes lit up, and I said, my car is a block away. If I give you a bucket and a sponge and water, would you wash my car and I'll give you $10? Well, the filthy, obscene stream of invective that poured out of his dirty lips um, were embarrassing. I, was, I, I felt bad that my, my child should have to, to listen to that, really. And... Um, I, um, I felt the point had been made. Uh, this is a widespread cultural deterioration that we're suffering from, uh, wanting something for nothing. And gambling is one of the alluring ways of exploiting people who have become uh, lesser human beings, wanting something for nothing. And as I said, back when the American psyche was far, far healthier during the time of the Depression, nobody wanted anything for nothing. People didn't want to beg. They wanted to make a living. They wanted a job. Today, far too many people don't want a job, and they've become accustomed to either begging or living off the sweat of their fellow citizens' brows. And there's a count. How many people are there in the United States who've quit working and are living off, uh, off welfare, food stamps, various entitlement programs, large numbers of people. Um, 
that wasn't that when when many of these programs were set in place they they were safer to set in place because there were so many people who would never have have, have availed themselves i mean to go on the dole was an embarrassment today not at all and uh, and so obviously a major deterioration and so when a uh, a cultural deterioration takes place the consequences are very serious initially uh, it's something you only see in, in the people, and then you quickly begin to see it manifest itself in the culture as well. And uh, the spread of gambling is very much um, a part of how this deterioration, how this decay is spreading through the culture. So why is it that simply knowing the secrets to success don't seem to produce success? Right? Everybody either knows or could quickly be taught that the secret of success is do what you must do when you must do it. <laughs> Why don't people do it? Well, they don't do it because uh, there's laziness. Each and every one of us would rather do other things. Some people want to sit around. Some people want to go to the beach. Some people want to watch cat videos on YouTube. Some people want to watch their... Uh, their uh, sitcom on television, uh, whatever it is, passivity is very much a, um, uh, a, a dangerous yearning that has been built into us, the desire to do, be passive rather than active. Okay, fine. But how about the appetites? Well, the appetites are a slightly different story. Uh, the appetites are these three, food, sex, and money. And because those are built into us, and because they so frequently lead to less successful lives than need be, uh, it becomes very valuable, particularly for young people, but all of us at any age, to really learn and understand the nature of these appetites, because they do impact our lives. Because if you don't know the nature of the appetite, then you have no way of knowing when to yield to it, when to resist to it, how to resist it. Okay, so let's take a quick look at what ancient Jewish wisdom has to say. And this, this lies at the, the heart of a great deal of, uh, of Jewish success in, uh, in, in both uh, family life and also in money and business. Because if there's one thing that is, or three things that are going to deflect you from success, they are these appetites. So let's take a quick look at them. Okay, here is how they differ from one another primarily. Food, and I'm going to simplify this slightly just because it's how I easily remember it, even though it needs just a little bit of elaboration. Uh, food, the more you have, the less you want. The less you have, the more you want. Okay, think about that for a moment. The more you have, the less you want. The less you have, the more you want. In other words, the less you have, the hungrier you are. The more ravenous you are. The more you are ready to eat a horse, saddle and all. And so, there you are. You've got no food. All of a sudden, you're able to sit down at a table with a lavish spread of wonderful food. And you just tear into it. And... Um, a little time goes by, and now it can be said that you really have food, right? Because you're stuffed up to the gills. 
Now, do you still want more? If somebody comes to you at that point and says, uh, uh, how about a nice chocolate cream brulee? And this is after you've already had black forest cake and you've already had English custard trifle and you've already had a whole lot of other things. And now somebody says, now, how about a big fat cream brulee? And you say, take it away, I'll throw up, right? The last thing you want is food at this point. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> you don't want any food now because the more you have, the less you want. The less you have, the more you want. Okay. Now, let's take a look at the opposite. Sex is interesting. And before I tell you about sex, I mean, not, not I'm sure you don't need to be told very much about it, but, uh, but one thing I, I probably do have to mention, because popular culture believes, and remember, we are living in a somewhat sex-drenched culture, um, the advertising, billboards, and, and some of it is, is extremely flagrant. Um, by the way, I, I pay a lot of attention to the positionings of the bodies in uh, sexually uh, structured advertising, whether the advertising is for clothing or for perfume, sometimes for cars, but whatever it is, advertising is so expensive that a great deal of thought goes into every single thing you see in that ad. Don't for a moment believe that there's anything at all that, that appears on the ad that uh, hasn't been carefully calculated for maximum impact. And, uh, and so without getting graphic, uh, I will just say that uh, positioning of bodies uh, in ads is very deliberate and also sometimes positioning of inanimate objects, whether it's a vodka bottle or a perfume bottle, uh, sometimes, again, very carefully placed for maximum sexual impact. And in the sex-drenched sex culture in which we live, there is the popular belief that, oh, everybody is subject to it. You know, you might pretend that you're immune to it. You might pretend, but nothing like it. You really are, are in the very uh, midst of it. You're, you have it just like everyone else. I say that because um, there is this popular belief that in uh, celibate orders like uh, uh, parts of the Roman Catholic Church, they, it is very popular for people to believe, oh, these priests are just pretending and these nuns are just pretending. Meanwhile, behind closed doors, these, um, these monasteries and, and uh, these various religious orders are seething cauldrons of sexual concupiscence. Oh, you should only know what goes behind on behind closed doors. It's not like that. It isn't like that at all. Now, it, it, is, it is true that there was a, a degree of uh, homosexual uh, abuse and involvement of, um, and I mean, you'd have to be a recent immigrant from outer Mongolia and not have heard about it. However, I'll tell you this, I don't believe there was nearly as much as people say, I do believe that um, a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon and uh, and made complaints in the hope of scoring big payoffs. And I do believe that the church, uh, in the end of the day, had little option but to pay people off rather than litigate with everybody because the mood of the culture, I don't believe justice would have been served. 
the mood was such that uh, they were going off to the church in, in a big way. Uh, did the church bring in a large number of uh, homosexual priests in the aftermath of um, Vatican II? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the pipe had to be paid eventually, I suppose. But uh, the point I'm making is that overall, in general, the overwhelming majority of um, uh, priests and, and many of, I mean, I have many friends I have in, in that situation, and I don't for one moment believe that they are anything other than 100% celibate, and, and that goes for the women as well. I think it's absolute, how's this possible? I mean, after all, you know, what, uh, what Hollywood type can even imagine somebody going through life without experiencing sex on a regular basis? Okay, well, one of the things they don't know, and you do, is that the sexual appetite is the opposite of the food appetite. You remember food, the less you have, the more you want. The more you want, the more sated you are, the less you want. With sex, it's the other way around. The more you have, the more you want. The less you have, the less you want. It's absolutely true. Uh, the, um, the more involved, and this even goes, by the way, for, for young men in uh, Bible colleges, in, in religious seminaries, um, keeping themselves, they are occupied with spiritual studies. Uh, they do not read uh, sexy magazines. They do not um, watch uh, R-rated movies. They just don't. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm serious. I've been in a lot of these places, both Jewish and Christian, and, um, and there is no seething cauldron of sexual concupiscence. It's not in the air. It's just not there because the less you have, the less you want. On the other hand, once somebody is involved in a sexual relationship, then that person wants more. Now, sometimes... He wants more with a different woman. That's sad, and that does happen, and it causes tremendous destruction in marriages, and that's because variety is part of the sexual attraction. Different topic. I don't want to go too deeply into that. Suffice it to say that wise wives understand this, and, uh, and they're able to cater to the reality that um, men seek, many women for what they think is their one primary need, whereas women truly seek one man to fulfill their many needs. So it's valuable and important to understand then that when it comes to sex, it truly works the opposite of food. The more sexually involved somebody is, the more they, they want it, the more they miss it, the more they think, you know, I need it. There it is. The less sexually involved, you're able to to avoid being tugged in that direction because it's not, it's just not there. It's not on your mind. It's not, it's not happening. Uh, if you ever heard the phrase "use it or lose it," uh, the the idea here is that opposite to food, which is the more you have, the less you want. The less you have, the more you want. The hungrier, you know, the, the, the less food you get, the more you want it. If you're sated with food, you don't want any more. There isn't such a thing as being sated with sex. Or if there is, it's only very temporarily with men. Um, the, the more involved, the more you want. The less involved, the less 
you want, the less you seek it. So that then is sex and money, which brings us only to, excuse me, sex and food, which brings us to money. And that's what I have to tell you about coming back right in a moment. But first of all, don't forget to visit my website, please, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, at the website, you can shoot me an email. Just go to the Contact Us tab. I love that. You can subscribe to my free weekly email called Thought Tools. You'll love that. And um, you can also visit the store and take a look at uh, the uh, product that I'm featuring this week, which is called the Income Abundance Set. Uh, that is for you or for anybody in your orbit, friend or family, that needs to change their entire financial destiny for this year. And it is not too far into the year for that to be a reality. It's called the Income Abundance Set, and the website is called rabbidaniellappin.com. My last name is spelled L-A-P-I-N, and it's rabbidaniellappin.com. Quick break, and as soon as we come back, let's take a look at the third appetite. We've looked at, at food. We've looked at sex. We're moving right on to money. And here we are together again, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You're there. I'm here, and I'm grateful to the technology and to the blaze that makes all of this possible. Thanks for being there, and uh, we're moving right along with further insight into uh, the appetite of money. Well, as we've already seen, uh, food works, the less you have, the more you want, the more you have, the less you want. Sex works, exactly the opposite. The less you have, the less you want. The more you have, the more you want. And now we come to money. <laughs> uh, money is very simple. The less you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you want. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't change. Everybody wants more money all the time. And it's important to understand that. It's important to recognize that. And it's important to understand that success in life depends upon being able to regulate those three appetites, as well, as I said earlier, being able to govern and dominate the whole issue of, um, of laziness, the, the issue of inertia, the, the aspect of us that would rather sit around in the shade and um, <clears throat> drink wine than would actually like to throw ourselves into plowing the field. But leaving aside laziness for the moment, conquering or controlling or being able to regulate the three appetites, tremendous avenue of success. Bad eating leads to bad health. It isn't a good thing. And what's more, you, uh, you weaken all of your willpower when you have no willpower on eating. In other words, you let go with food, and I'm sure you've seen this, right? You've seen people who are um, just out of control with food, and it's almost ugly to watch them eat. You know, the rate at which they're stuffing food at their face, and you think to yourself, you know, I mean, do you, would you really trust that person with anything really important, with something you value? Would you trust? It doesn't look like it. It's a person who's too focused on satisfying that appetite of food it would it would be disturbing and um, and so obviously early on controlling the appetite of food very important well then we get to the appetite of sex right how hard is it for you and i to think of people we know usually men by the way 
who have literally destroyed their lives because of sex. It's, it's, it's almost a cliche. It's so obvious. So clearly then, one of the best uh, favors you can give a child you are raising is the ability to control these appetites. And then money. The love of money, obviously that's not a good thing any more than love of food or the love of sex in and of themselves. Obviously these are not good things. And if somebody is not able, a person is not able to regulate and restrain his appetite for money, there is no telling what he would do and justify it because it gets him money, right? I mean, right down at the, the lowest criminal level, there are people who murder because they don't want to leave a witness to a robbery. What's that for? It's just to get money, right? That's all it is. It was done to get money. And uh, uh, all the way up uh, to people who destroy uh, careers in business, destroy careers because of um, doing something that, that is in, improper in order to get money. So obviously, yes, the way to success is do what you must do when you must do it, sure. And easier said than done. Because the only way to give a person the ability to follow that excellent advice is to also give them the ability to control those appetites. Okay, <clears throat> over to a, uh, a little Lappin family story where, um, uh, where we were with another family and um, we, we were on our way to a, a, a barbecue and a, a picnic. And so we, we wanted to stop at a market to pick up some uh, relish and some mustard. Um, and so we went into the market. We picked up that. And we saw a few other things we wanted. And uh, there were the four adults, uh, Susan Lappin and myself, along with uh, the other couple, along with their children and, and some of our children. Anyways, we all we came to the, the checkout, and we're all in the line together eventually. Um, it comes to our turn. But meanwhile, you know how many markets place candies in the checkout line, things that will be sort of impulse purchases. And, uh, and so the kids in the other family were kicking up an unbelievable row. I want that. Can I have that? I'm taking this. Meanwhile, they'd reached out, and their hands were clutching <laughs> – um, uh, Tic Tacs and uh, and chewing gums and all of these things and and uh, it was turning into an embarrassing family imbroglio as the parents were sort of prying open little fists and pulling out the uh, the, the 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 candies and putting them back on the shelf and trying to uh, remonstrate with the children to stop. Anyways, it was all a bit embarrassing. What was very conspicuous in this uh, circumstance was. That and I'm believe me, I'm not boasting about this at all. Uh, I'm just I'm, I'm telling you how it was for a very specific point I want to make. Uh, it was very conspicuous that the Lappin children not only were not doing that at all, but they had eyes wide with horror at what they were witnessing the other family's children doing. Anyway, as you can imagine, it didn't take long before we were back in the vehicle heading towards our destination, when the other couple said to us, you know, sorry about that. We really were very embarrassed. 
sorry, it happens every time. That's why we never like taking them to the market. It happens every single time. And, um, and then it, we, we sort of murmured um, compassionately, sympathetically, and then uh, it eventually came out. And they said, well, how, how come it doesn't happen with your kids? Like, how do you stop that? And, uh, and I said, look, it's not, it's not us as much as it is the system to which we subscribe. And they said, well, that's very, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I want you to think about this for a moment. We, um, we train our children from the youngest age, like two years old, they're already hearing this, that certain foods are kosher and certain foods are not kosher. So they, they grow up and they become toddlers and they become three and four and five and six. And they see that um, there are loads of kosher restaurants. When we, we come to a new town and we're visiting, um, you know, wherever it is, or we, we go to Disneyland, okay? There's tons of great restaurants in Disneyland. <clears throat> and all the kids are walking around with hot dogs and everything. And our kids know that um, we bring... Uh, crackers and cream cheese and fruit and whatever it is we're bringing uh, because there is no kosher food. And so from the earliest age, they learn that certain things are no. In other words, imagine if you would that there is a kind of spiritual no muscle in our beings. In the same way that we have regular physical muscles, we have a spiritual muscle. And that is the ability to say no. And, uh, and since these children here from an early age, this we may eat, this we may not eat, when mommy says no to the candies in the checkout aisle, she doesn't even have to say they're not kosher, regardless of where they are. She wouldn't say that. She just says no. You know why? Because the no muscle has already been exercised. You do your kids a tremendous disservice if they never, ever get to practice the no muscle. The no muscle then atrophies. And the consequences are more serious than you can even imagine. And I'll explain to you in a moment. But, uh, but that becomes a, a very critical thing. So in other words, you can already see that the whole principle of kosher has nothing to do with whether it's healthy or not healthy. Right? Regardless, there are many kosher foods that are really, really unhealthy. And there are many foods that are not kosher that I'm sure are perfectly healthy. That's not the issue. We're not talking physical. We're talking spiritual. And success in life depends on a very healthy, functioning, vibrant, effective, and strong no muscle. The kosher laws help to develop that. And that is why... Our kids never, ever kicked up a fuss at the checkout aisle or anywhere else because they are well accustomed to us saying, you know, we're at Disneyland. You want to know why we can't have a hot dog? Because they don't sell any kosher hot dogs. That's all. End of conversation. It's tremendously powerful. Now, think about what happens next. It doesn't take long before children grow up and they hit puberty and the sap of youthful hormones begins rising and uh, and teenage passions begin to burn 
It's very difficult. Imagine a child who's had zero practice saying no. A child who's never been told that he has, has to restrain his bodily appetites, right? I know you feel like a hot dog, but you're not going to be able to get one. It's not kosher. Let's say a child's never had that. A child is always, I mean, and unfortunately, I see this all the time where children are, are walking in Disneyland or anywhere else. I want a hot dog. The parents act as if it's the IRS calling. They jump at it and they run to get a hot dog for the child. Hello, it's okay if your child goes a little hungry. But no, your child now is being taught that every appetite must be responded to and, uh, and indulged as soon as you feel it. Every time those little tummy enzymes start calling for food, you give the child food, whatever he wants. Not surprisingly, when it's not enzymes but hormones asking for satisfaction on a sexual front, obviously the child has no ability to say no. The same goes for drugs, by the way. It's the most absurd thing. You may remember a campaign many years ago in America, just say no. I think it came from the White House, maybe the Reagan White House at the time. And uh, the idea was, teach, just tell children, just say no. And they were talking about sex and drugs. Hello, I'm sure you can see, by the time a child is 15 or 14 or 12 or 16, it's far, far too late to say, just say no. Because you missed the opportunity of training the no muscle when the child was two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. That was your only chance of training the no muscle. To tell people just say no when you're 16 and the, the pull is urgent and strong is absurd. Save your breath, it's a total waste. But if you've been establishing that principle from early on, then it's okay. And this is one of the reasons that um, uh, sexual uh, promiscuity is almost non-existent in religious Jewish and Christian high schools. I'm not saying never happens, I'm not saying nothing, but I'm saying compared to what goes on in gigs, compared to what goes on in a gig, what happens in a parochial Christian or Jewish high school, it's like almost, oh, you want to know what a gig is? Well, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you here and uh, happy this is your first podcast. A gig is a government indoctrination camp, a government indoctrination camp. It's a place where people foolishly send their kids to be indoctrinated. They send them there for several hours every day. It's a camp. Uh, nothing serious takes place there other than indoctrination. Uh, many people refer to them as public schools, but uh, I think that that nomenclature is already becoming um, uh, out, of, out of use, as everybody understands, that these are really geeks, and uh, that's how it is. Hi, everybody. Be right back. Don't go the away. Rabbi Daniel Appen Show. And uh, the website, and I know I am probably uh, boring you dreadfully when I keep repeating the website, but uh, I know that there are new people joining the show every single week, and uh, they may not have it down yet. So do keep a record of it. It's rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, it's the place to go to, to uh, first of all, head over to the store section, 
and read about the uh, product called the Income Abundance Set. Um, it is what it sounds like, which is a description of a collection of material that, that crystalli crystallizes the information that, um, ha frankly, has always been used by micro-religionists um, in order to disproportionately succeed in, in business. Everything you have to understand, everything you have to wrap yourself around, and all the changes you need to make in you and in your outlook uh, to turn yourself into somebody who has a, uh, an entirely successful relationship with money. It's called the Income Abundance Set. You can read more about it on uh, my website at youneedarabbi.com. That's right. You can either find my website with youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. Both work in exactly the same way. And uh, also, uh, please email me. You go to the Contact Us tab on the website and let me hear from you. And um, also subscribe to the free weekly email called Thought Tools. Um, and that, that's the deal, okay? I, I do this podcast. I put out this material. Uh, I record this and make sure it's available for you every week up on the site. And in exchange, you visit my website and, uh, and stay in touch with me, okay? All right. We got, we got ourselves a deal there. And, uh, and so there it is. Uh, what kosher is all about is not physical health. It's spiritual health. And the truth is that for a successful life, you need spiritual health every bit as much as you need physical health. In many ways, your physical health depends on your spiritual health, right? You've heard of holistic health, right? The idea of the whole being. Well, it's not just the body. It's the soul as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a case of people not exercising, people eating too much, people, people making many mistakes. And why do they make those mistakes, right? There's nobody, there's nobody who doesn't understand that the way to keep your weight right is to eat less and exercise more. So why don't we do it? Well, because the good Lord built us with appetites that he wanted us to learn how to control and regulate and restrain. One of those is food. That's right. And uh, after that, right, comes sex. And yes, there again. Restraint is the key. But here's the important thing. You know how it is that uh, when you're on a diet, and maybe, maybe you've never had this experience, but for people who have been on a diet, and let's say you have a real weakness for chocolate cream eclairs, and there you are, you've been really great. You've been, your willpower has been superb. And then one night, I don't know, maybe you're up late or you're working, whatever it is, and you know there's a tray of chocolate creamy clairs in the fridge, and you cannot resist it. You finally say, you know what? One isn't going to hurt. I, need, I deserve a reward for the incredible progress I've made the last week with keeping to my exercise regimen and not eat. It's great. I need a reward. You go along and you have, you have the chocolate creamy clair. And it's a struggle. You know, you first say, no, I really shouldn't. Then, but, you know, okay, finally, finally, you go along and have it. Would you agree that having a second one never involves anywhere near the same kind of moral struggle? And by the time you have a third one, I mean, you're already reaching for number four. In other words, here's the crucial thing. 
every single time you successfully apply your willpower, every single time you successfully restrain your appetite in one way or the other, you are now that much stronger for the next test. You're that much better equipped for the next time you face a challenge. Every time you yield to an appetite, you are that much weaker for the next time. Isn't that interesting? But again, that's just a reality about how we're constructed. And so therefore, if you want to be able to raise children, or for that matter, raise yourself, to be somebody who is capable of acting with willpower on all your appetites, then you've got to start with the most basic. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that people who are not Jewish should observe kosher laws. Of course not. Of course not. Not saying that at all. And I'm not saying there's any reason at all for anybody not to eat pork if they're not Jewish. Uh, really no reason at all. All I'm saying is that uh, it's much easier to train ourselves and our children to apply willpower when it comes to food. Maybe such a thing as, uh, I know you want a hot dog now, but guess what? It's not lunchtime. So you just let those enzymes chew away on your tummy because we're not having anything till lunchtime. Uh, your mom wasn't so dumb after all. You remember your old mom who, who used to say, you eat only at meals, not between meals? She had a point, and part of that point is even a simple discipline like that, which is not running to get your child a hamburger the moment he calls for one, even that little willpower on your, is helping your child develop the ability to control appetites, to control himself, to exert willpower, and to really make a difference to his future life. And that's really how it works. It's really, really important, because remember, your children uh, copy what you do much more than they obey what you say, right? It's a true thing to know. And so it's really important that your children see you exerting willpower as well. If they see you grabbing for uh, a snack every time your tummy rumbles, then obviously they think that's okay for them too. And, uh, and so it is on, on every single level. Uh, applying willpower strengthens you for the next test, and it also lets your children see that it's not just that you are asking them to obey an authority, as it were, an outside authority, but you are doing it as well. Okay, and that's uh, a tremendously, tremendously powerful concept. Um, you know, um, it uh, is another part of, of Jewish life, and, and this is something I think I'm going to treat in a, a completely separate podcast. We'll, we'll do this separately. But um, Jewish husbands and wives don't sleep with one another for a certain period of every month. Okay, and, and uh, some of you may, may be aware of that. And again, I'll, I'll deal with that on another occasion. We'll talk about that. But again, I want you to think about the impact Again, because your adolescent children are very aware of when you lock the door. They're very aware, okay? And so it's rather amazing that they realize and they understand, they get it, that, um, that, that their parents are able to actually apply sexual restraint as well. You can't imagine the enormously powerful result 
on an adolescent boy or girl who suddenly said, wait a second, you know, when my parents say sex is for marriage, um, even though they're married, it's amazing, but they're actually not touching each other for a certain part of the time every month. The impact on the family is immensely powerful. And again, um, I'm not trying to uh, teach Judaism at all, but I'm trying to teach the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom, the timeless truths that each and every one of us can apply in our own lives in our own way. Because when you've got the principles down, you can apply and deploy these principles in a way that improve your life in almost every area. Areas of friendships, faith, family, and yes, finance. So uh, head over to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, explore, explore the store. Uh, you will find things I've prepared for you there that delve far more deeply than I can do on the show, and uh, you'll be able to find out more about them at rabbidaniellappin.com. You can uh, subscribe to my thought tools, and uh, of course, you can also shoot me a message. So uh, that brings us to as far as we're going to go for today's show, which leaves me just enough time to wish you all a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.